Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sanya Faruqi Show. Today, we have with us Yasmin Ullah. She is a Rohingya social justice activist. Born in the northern Rakhine state of Myanmar, she fled to Thailand in 1995 along with her parents and remained a refugee in Thailand until 2011. She formally served as the president of the Rohingya Human Rights Network, a nonprofit group led by activists across Canada in advocacy and raising public awareness about the Rohingya genocide. Yasmin has continued to engage with the Rohingya issues through an intersectional lens locally in Canada and internationally as well. She has worked on various projects such as the Time to Act, Rohingya Voices exhibition with the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, the Genocide Learning Tool with the Montreal Holocaust Museum and the anthology I'm a Rohingya, where she published her poetry along with other Rohingya poets from all around the world. She's currently completing her undergraduate degree in political science. Thank you so much, Yasmin. Uh, wonderful to have you on the Sanya Faruqi show. And I'm really glad that we have finally managed to connect and speak to each other today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Um, so, Yasmin, I'm going to start with what's happening in Myanmar at the moment. You know, the military is back in charge. You know, they've overthrown the democratic government and have declared a year-long state of emergency in the country. It seized control on 1st February. Can you talk a little about, you know, what exactly happened in Myanmar and how this entire coup took place? So on February 1st, um, where, you know, very close to the date of the resuming of the parliament um, in session in Myanmar, um, since the last election took place in 2020, the NLD led by um, Dong Sun Suu Kyi, the de facto leader of the previous administration, won a landslide uh, uh, election uh, countrywide. And uh, the military happened to basically pause that um, that process and institute this this state of emergency and uh, basically charged um, basically placed charges against um, the president the previous president as well as the de facto leader the leader of the NLD party um, and most of those charges are something to do with the violation of COVID-19. It's still a very, very vague um, and very uh, convoluted type of um, criminal charges. They're actually currently on trial right now. Um, today, they were um, they were they were basically brought to trial in the court in Myanmar without their representation, without their lawyers, which is you know very much illegal, but the military found a way to justify that somehow. Um, and basically what brought um, the coup to the attention of the international community was that um, the coup took place soon after the, the, the election result and you know the new cabinet members are coming together. Um, and uh, the memory of the coup d'etat from 60 years ago and, and onwards, you know, we've had three coups so far since 1962. Um, that memory still live very deeply within a lot of Myanmar citizens and the pain and the hurt that comes with it still reminds them of, you know, the, the, the glory that the country could never actually achieved. So the, the, um, the protest began in uh, Naypyidaw and in Yangon, um, and uh, slowly it spread 
throughout the country where people actually started to um, protest against the military overthrowing the democratic transition um, process as well as overthrowing the elected uh, elected officials elected um, members of parliament and um, they're also, uh, uh, you know, united on on various different platforms in different um, uh, campaigns, but they're united in in one um, uh, campaign called a civil disobedience movement, which is a way to basically um, relay the message and convey it to the military that they reject. The Myanmar coup, the the military coup, and that is not part of the democratic process. And they want their democracy back. They do not want um, this this rejection of uh, elected uh, government being overthrown. They want their uh, election results of 2020 to be respected. And um, also, with part of all of those, there comes um, the the issues of the ethnic minorities and various different, you know. Uh, uh, human rights and crimes against humanity issues that arises, you know, not just among, you know, not just about the Rohingya issues that happened and caught the international um, attention, but it, it encompasses the entire country. And it actually emphasized the systemic um, problems that exist within our country that is created by the military because that was you know the distraction that they wanted to, to have so that we divert attention away from uh, from actually caring about the systemic nature of all of these problems um, and instead fight against each other it's you know a simple simple rule of divide and conquer um currently the civil disobedience movement have been threatened really really terribly um there have been a lot of psychological warfare that the military have launched um first it was the you know usual um uh dissolving of protests by shooting water cannons um which is very, very much not something that the um, international human rights standard would 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 call for, and it's really, really illegal. Um, but at the same time, they're also shooting rubber bullets, um, and they escalated to uh, nightly raids where they go into different houses around the areas that are known uh, to have, you know, protests and um, go and arrest people. And there have been a lot of cases of arson um, on top of that various different ethnic areas, specifically today, uh, railways uh, workers have actually uh, went on strike and um, they put themselves on the railways um, to, you know, to showcase that they actually disapprove of this. And it's, it's been really, really, really unifying um, in terms of, you know, how many people have joined and various different ethnic communities coming to, to actually show the, the, the support um, of, you know, uh, uh, people um, voicing their own dissenting views against the military coup. So human rights groups have condemned the coup and have called a shutdown heinous and reckless and have also warned it could put people of Myanmar at the risk of human rights violation. Could you talk a little about what's going on on the ground and, you know, what are the reports that you're hearing? So there have been a lot of um, a lot of, you know, attempts to dissolve um, protests and demonstrations. On top of that, there have been use of force, um, water cannons, rubber rubber bullets. Specifically today, though, there have been reports of railway uh, railroads workers uh, um, being physically assaulted by the security forces, 
and um, various different other uh, other scenario where nightly raids is becoming very, very common to weaken the protesters' um, uh, ability to actually go out in the morning. And uh, they would arbitrarily arrest a lot of um, uh, rights defenders, human rights defender and democratic uh, uh, movement leaders um, in order to basically uh, ensure that they shut down um, the, the voices um, and, and, you know, basically, silence the people. Um, but more and more people have come out and more more workers um, in different industries have actually uh, uh, went on strike. And even um, this includes uh, uh, healthcare workers and frontline workers who, who were the first, the very first people to come out. So the situation is worrisome to say the least. And um, I, I it's it's very very heinous, but um, we know probably less than ten percent of what's going on on the ground and the and the kind of fear that it instills in people. Um, and this is a very very common tactic by the military um, that is used in all of the conflict areas across the country. Yeah, uh, but the military has also shut down the country's internet. You know, police have blocked all the main roads where people are protesting. They're not allowing protesters to move. We are hearing reports of uh, gunshots in neighborhoods where there are just citizens, you know, sitting inside the house, but there are people who have been shot. Um, can you tell us how the citizen protests are defying the military coup? How are people dealing with this? Have you Do you know what's happening on the ground? Because it is difficult to get all the information with the internet being shut down right now. Mm -hmm. As far as, um, uh, you know, following the Twitter threats and, and really following the news, uh, people are quite shaken by the core, but they also know that uh, without coming together, without unifying, without actually taking to the street and, uh, you know, making it known to the world that they reject this, this sort of um, uh, unconstitutional, uh, uh, you know, seizing of power, they will not have another chance at this. And we've lived under a military regime for, you know, decades. And that includes the, the decade that we had with the NLD in power, because that was a compromise with the military in power. And living under their, their control um, have not proven to anybody that anyone was going to succeed or have sort of a, uh, any upward social mobility at all. Everybody is sort of um, uh, pressed under this, this layers of oppression by the military basically to go back and benefit them um, economically. Um, there's a lot of social injustices that are, you know, very rampant. And basically they go unaddressed because of the military's power in, in the veto um, in the parliament because 25% of their votes have to, you know, um, they, they have 25% seat in the parliament. And that's written into the 2008 um, uh, rewriting of the constitution, which is, also not something that the, the public have endorsed. And so all of this layers of oppression and, and various different kind of changes that have happened in the past have really drove people to the street. And uh, they are, I think they are, they're just done with, with the fact that they would have to um, live under a culture of impunity where the military's 
are just untouched and they gain more and more you know uh money from from the suffering of the people everywhere in the country yeah but what does the military coup mean like what does it say about Aung San Suu Kyi you know there was a small window where Myanmar experienced democracy you know and now it seems to be slipping back into the military control what does this signify what does it say about Aung San Suu Kyi as well um the the very idea of her um taking uh the trip to the Hague last uh in 2019 at the end of 2019 to defend the actions of the military spoke volume about who and who she is first of all as a person and where she stands in her understanding of how um democratic transition in Myanmar uh should process uh should progress sorry and and it isn't a genuine process unfortunately from the get go the 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 first thing that the us uh, the united states did right after her release um and her being you know being able to become the de facto leader was to ease off all of the sanctions that were placed against myanmar and most by the way most of the um national enterprise are controlled by the military and their cronies so it is uh, a lot of money that went into lining the pockets of the generals and the easing off of the sanctions really helped them to be able to seek all the foreign investments and um thus further oppress their own people further you know uh uh um uh widespread of the uh racial social um inequality Um what is the role of social media in the current state why is the military so keen to block and shut down the internet and you know there've also been reports of how facebook misused um its uh platform to speak against the rohingyas or perhaps promote yes. content that was against the rohingyas can you can you talk a little about that as well Absolutely, yeah um the reason why it, it, the military has been so successful at um in the past 60 years at keeping the citizens at bay in fear of course and under their power have not you know uh uh after the 88 generation or the saffron revolution when when people rose up and and try to uh took back take back the power and you know uh uh really really you know call for democracy um even when that happened they didn't really succeed the reason was because there was a lot of campaigns of dis- disinformation this is the tactic that the military has used and have been really really successful at um there's also a lot of state propaganda that actually seeps into various different functions of the society educational institutions tv programs various other kind of medias um and with the internet they have actually used the state of the art type of technology to spread more misinformation and 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 uh basically uh, create this hate rhetoric against rohingya basically calling them calling us bengali calling us you know recent migrants calling us not you know not belonging to the country or using very various different uh um rhetoric that is very insulting and offensive um they're finding this you know exponentially harder to do in the age of in the era of internet because anyone 
would be allowed to do anything on the internet. And unfortunately for them, uh, it is very different from China in a way that Facebook and various other media platform has not been sort of controlled in, in the way that China has done. Um, so there is still a little bit of space left for people to actually do a little bit more free thinking and critical thinking and analyzing what is right and what is wrong. And there's more and more dissenting voice that are actually accumulating on the internet. Um, more and more that, uh, you know, more and more of um, the, the resistance are growing within the within these different spaces. And so, um, Painting, for example, painting the Rohingya as folks devil um, in, in sociological term to basically create moral panic isn't as easy as as it did, um, uh, you know, years ago when it was just TV programs and, you know, some newspaper or something like that. Um, so although Facebook and, uh, uh, you know, various different tactics that they've been using have actually succeeded, to a certain extent to actually uh, cause 2017 uh, to happen. But right now, because people across the country are actually quite angry and they're channeling all of that into finding various different technology, technological leeway to gather, to accumulate, to actually um, hatch out different ideas and thoughts on how they could creatively go about navigating the, the repressive uh, regime. And they're, they're successful at it. So the military is quite threatened and scared. And this is how they retaliate. They shut down the internet so that people can't really gather, but it's still failing. Yeah, because information is being shared. Um, you know, you have to leave from Myanmar in 1995 with your family, and you were you were also born in the Rakhine State in Myanmar. Could you have ever anticipated what we saw in 2017? You know, the mass genocidal attempt against the Rohingyas. Um, I would be lying if I say that I didn't. Um, I think that internally we all sort of knew as Rohingya because we have been cut off from our roots. We've, we've been forced to leave um, in so many different ways, economically or, or otherwise, um, or, or you know, for safety reasons. Um, during the 1990s, it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of scorched earth campaigns and violent campaigns that the military has launched against the Rohingya. Um, that was the first, uh, that was the first few um, attempts of actually push the, the Rohingya out. And there, there are a lot of um, Rohingya that uh, are now in Bangladesh refugee camps who've been there for 40 years. So this was something that they were already doing as a test run. So I, I knew that something terrible was going to, um, was sort of doomed to happen in one point, at one point um, um, in time, but I didn't know what it would be. And I probably didn't expect the magnitude of, um, of the kind of violations that we would have to suffer through. Um, but it was already ingrained in us to, to, to be intimidated, to, be, um, to fear the military, to fear the authority, because that's always been what um, the tactic that they've used on us. The, the same kind of tactics that you see right now, the psychological warfare, the waits at night, the, the shooting of people, the arbitrary arrest, the uh, restriction of movements, all of the things that the protesters are dealing with right now have been used on every single ethnic com communities and the Rohingya 
prior to actual um, campaign of, uh, of violence, rape, torture, and killings. Yeah. Um, so where does this leave the crackdown on the Rohingyas? You know, there are 600,000 Rohingyas still inhabiting the country. What is the impact of the ongoing military coup on their livelihood? How much does that, how much does it threaten them? Interestingly enough, um, the military general and the, the, the military, um, uh, you know, the, the department that's there, they actually uh, did some outreach to uh, various different leaders in Rakhine State, not excluding Rohingya at all, including Rohingya, and try to appease them, try to persuade them to actually thinking and legitimizing the, the stance of the military to, to, um, to justify the coup. And uh, various leaders have been, you know, given monetary value um, of some kind. And they've been persuaded in, in various other different ways. We, we don't really have too much details on this, but there are reports on this. And uh, uh, there are, you know, there is a, a, a really, really big um, party in Rakhine State, a political party that have endorsed the coup. Unfortunately, um, this was uh, through, uh, this was a Rakhine uh, political party. Um, but there are also promises that are that are being made to Rohingya uh, groups, and the 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 promise was that people will be able to come back. And actually, the military general Minolang actually um, appeared uh, in the uh, state TV and um, basically mentioned uh, that. It is still welcoming, you know, various different uh, international investment, and that it will, um, it is uh, trying to just, you know, abide by the rules of democracy, and it's going to return the power to the people, and it will have um, basically appeasing the the public and trying to persuade them to to understanding his point of view, but. He also mentioned something very, very interesting, saying that there will be an implementation of repatriation bilaterally with Bangladesh. And uh, that state appearance was, was uh, um, to basically ease off some international, international pressure that it's been feeling because as we saw the US, uh, the United States, uh, the president actually came out to, to express his concerns over the coup, but also saying that um, the, the United States have actually placed targeted sanctions against uh, the, the assets and freezing the assets of the military, $1 billion in the US. Also, um, a lot of uh, uh, targeted sanctions against the military owned companies. And um, although this took place um, to try to ease off some international pressure, there are still no details on how it will happen, what will happen, or, you know, an example like whether or not Rohingya will be able to return to their original villages or they will you know, ever get their homes back. So there is a lot of um, question around reintegration process. And I know that the military has never been genuine in how you know, 
or, or in the concerns about Rohingya, they're still going to offer us to do the, um, to basically um, have to go through the national veri uh, verification process, which is basically giving us a second class citizenship, um, basically to single us out, keep us, you know, at the lower strata, the social um, group, so that we can further be persecuted and never actually get to move up the social ladder and be able to represent ourselves and be truly reintegrated into the Myanmar society and accepted. Yeah. What are your comments on what's happening in Bangladesh, where thousands of Rohingya refugees are being shifted to Bashanchor Island? We're seeing reports of human rights violations, sexual abuse, and people being forced to move into the island. Um, what do you have to say about that? Well, um, as long as the perpetrators um, and the culture of impunity um, remains in Myanmar, there is um, not a lot of likelihood that we would ever be able to hold anyone accountable, at least within the judicial processes that exist inside Myanmar, because it's filled with people um, who have served in the military or the personnel that are handpicked by the military. And so the, the system is completely corrupt um, although there are, you know, hopes of the newer generations and the people who understand a little bit better, um, you know, in terms of human rights and, and the, the standards um, of the international human rights um, legal mechanisms. But at the same time, um, there, you know, the, the issue of Basanchar creates very, very peculiar uh, uh, parallel with um, how the culture of impunity in Myanmar play out. Um, because the, the, the very idea of moving Rohingya into an isolated island uh, deprived the public of transparency of what goes on inside the island um, puts a lot of people at risk of further human rights violations, um, especially because they're so, so isolated and they do not have access to the public. Um, and to this day, since the, the very first move, since the first 300, 300 people who uh, were rescued off of the um, Bangladeshi shore um, were put there, they were promised to be reintegrated back. They were promised to be sent back into the Cox's Bazar refugee camps, but that never happened. Um, there has to be a serious independent investigation and an assessment on the conditions of living on the island um, to ensure that the quality of life is actually on par with, you know, with basically how, you know, a, a, a quality of life that, that a human uh, uh, should be treated as, like something that is, whether or not they're able to access basic rights every single day, are they able to eat, are they able to, you know, have access to uh, uh, various different kind of resources. Um, this is very worrying for me and, and for many Rohingya activists because there have been reports of sexual and gender-based violence by the um, Bangladeshi Navy. And uh, because they're sort of locked away in a way, um, there is a lot of concerns around, you know, the women and children who basically suffered at the hands of the military, the Myanmar military, and now are suffering um, the culture, there is some sort of culture um, of impunity that's going on with the, the concept of moving people into Basanchar and these same people 
um, have been, you know, going through a lot of uh, the genocidal effects, um, and it seems to prolong the 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 one of the worst impacts of genocide. Um, so this whole idea of you know removing people and constantly moving them really 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 put a strain on on uh, the ability of the Rohingya to be able to reestablish themselves at least you know to be able to be rid of trauma and they continuously have to put on a survival mode and they would not be able to really uh, uh, envision the future that they want because right now they're constantly just trying to live on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay, Yasmin, my last question for you is being a Rohingya yourself and being a Rohingya activist, how hopeful are you about the future of the Rohingya community? Um, it is, it, it gets hard from day to day, um, depending on what, what comes up. And there, there have been a lot of things in the past few days, but from the, the tone changes or from the, the kind of attitude changes or the expression, the perception of that at least, that I've seen from my you know, uh, fellow Burmese um, is quite, heart, like quite heartwarming uh, because for the past few years, you know, even during the time that I, that I was at the ICJ, there were protest and counter protest um, you know, against the ICJ case, and then the people who supported the ICJ case, who are mostly ethnic communities, because they have suffered similar crimes. Um, and seeing that people are coming together and basically expressed to me that they regretted not having stood with us. Um, it is a really, really big step because all I think that all that Rohingya have ever wanted, the first thing that we have wanted was an apology of some kind. Or even if it's not an apology, an acknowledgement that we have gone through something terrible that no humans should go through. Um, and, and really uh, uh, an acknowledgement and acceptance of who we are as humans and that we have value, inherent value um, that exists within us that, that shouldn't be violated. Um, and so, it brings me a little bit of joy and a little bit of hope um, in the changes that may come out of this coup, uh, which would not be possible if the NLD actually took uh, take reign for another, maybe another decade or more. Um, I feel that that compromise with the military will never get anywhere farther than, you know, some tiny, tiny changes to appease the public here and there. But this actual uh, 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 protest and, and countrywide uh, demonstrations really prove to the country, to the, to the people themselves, that their willpower is stronger than the military might. And that might actually bring about changes in true democratic transition in the future. And the only way Rohingya would be able to survive this genocide and the impacts of it is being able to live inside a country um, that is led by a true democratic government. And with that, because I've worked uh, a little bit for the past few months with an organization called Altsian um, on a project called Bridges Myanmar, which is 
bringing people together, especially young leaders of various different ethnic communities to convene every single, every, every um, weekend um, online. And uh, we talk about various different human rights issues that our communities suffer through. And uh, we talk about various different human rights mechanism that is available um, in the ASEAN in, um, uh, you know, in terms of the UN or the Declaration of Human Rights, various different, you know, angle of it. And we discuss those things and we have guest speakers. And the, the first meeting was a little bit rough and very, it, it comes across as sort of, sort of hostile almost because uh, we as Rohingya we were we were joining because we knew that you know we 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 are part of the country and and we never claim to be anything else but um because of the years of propaganda uh, and and you know the socialization that have brought them to this you know to this moment they have carried a lot of hate rhetoric with them but then the shift you know took place and it just it takes only a few months for this the same the same young leaders to change their mindset completely and to change their tone towards Rohingya. And there was a little bit more uh, uh, solidarity among us because we, if nothing unites us at all, and if the differences are so large and so great for us to actually we can't really look away from it. At least we unite on the ground that we have the same perpetrators. Thank you, Yasmin. On that note, I'm going to wrap up. Truly wonderful to have you on the Sanya Faruqi show and this very important conversation with you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank and, you <laughs> and for those of you who've been watching, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that you will subscribe to my YouTube channel, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll see you again next week.